Uh, we are talking about being powerful Christians. We started talking about that last week, and over the next several weeks, we'll be talking about that, living with power. And I understand today, uh, for Christians to talk about power, it may seem like playing with nitroglycerin. I mean, it's a little dangerous to talk about power, especially today, because um, uh, because of what people are thinking about power across our, our country and our neighborhoods. I mean... It's a little dangerous to just talk about power. Um, over the last two weeks, we've seen a lot of people that are suspicious of power. We've seen a horrific, grotesque use of power in the killing of George Floyd. We have seen many, many, many people calling for a... Uh, a reform of power. We've seen abuse of power on the opposite side as peaceful, peaceful protests have been followed by, by um, lootings and vandalism, violence, robbery. Uh, talking about power as a Christian today may seem a little dangerous. And so we need to kind of treat that carefully and wisely. How can we be Christians of real power? We're going to look at um, a speech that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2. If you brought your Bible, I hope you brought your Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible, get out your mobile device so you can look up Acts chapter 2. Google that real fast if you don't have a Bible app. Uh, Start in verse 29, and we're going to see the power, I think, real power. Christian power that will be well-received by this world, that will be welcomed by this world in our society, starts with two unlikely words. Starting with verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking to this crowd of thousands, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, to Peter and to other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Look at this response from Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what does this passage have to do with being powerful Christians? We're going to see as we look through this that um, 
in order to be powerful, you need to know three things. You need to know your sin. You need to know what your sin is against. And you need to know what it means to really repent. Now, talking about sin uh, has got to be a lot less popular than talking even about power uh, today. Uh, it's interesting, in all the news, and I might have missed some, because uh, I have, I mean, I've paid attention to some news stories, but I haven't just flooded myself with watching things or reading the news. Uh, so I might have missed out. But I think in all of the, the reportings and all of the analysis, kind of the cultural analysis of the past couple of weeks, um, I don't think I've ever heard the, the word sin used once. And it needs to be used because of what sin is. So I want to go through um, what is sin. Let's just look at a few ways that we can speak about sin, describe sin. Um, So what is sin? We can start with like a a dictionary definition. This comes from St. Augustine. Sin is any word or deed or thought against the eternal law. So that kind of makes sense, right? God gives us commands. And when we disobey those commands in word or deed, or even in thought. And there's scriptures that support that, that even our thought life, we can sin. Um, That's when we go against God's command. Um, Another thing that we can say about sin, sin is missing the mark. And the word sin used in this uh, scripture in the ancient times was used even in non-religious settings to talk about missing the mark. That was the definition of sin. It was to, to miss the mark or miss the target. Um, but that description of sin seems to be insufficient at times. Doesn't it seem to be a little, just, it doesn't go deep enough. Acts chapter 7 tells a story of Stephen, who was uh, one of the leaders of the church. And Stephen was stoned to death by religious authorities, and some of the Jews of the day. And why, why did that happen? Well, it happened because uh, he accused the Jewish religious leaders of killing Jesus. He called them murderers, and that didn't go well with them. And they drug him outside of the city, and they began stoning him. And right before, right before he died, the last things that Stephen said, he, he says um, to God, um, about these people that are killing him. In verse 60 of Acts 7, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And let me tell you what he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking, you know, fellas, you're really missing the mark here with this stoning thing. He wasn't saying, boy, guys, you're really missing the target here as you're smashing me with stones. See, thinking of sin as missing the mark, that doesn't go deep enough, does it? So here's another thing that we can say about sin. Sin is an evil deed. And what we saw happen with George Floyd, that was an evil deed. That wasn't just missing the mark. Oh boy, he just missed the mark. No, 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 no. Sin is an evil deed. One of the historic reform confessions is the second Helvetic confession. It came out of Switzerland and Germany, and this is what... That confession says about sin. It says, By sin we understand the innate corruption of man, 
which has been derived or propagated in us, all from our first parents, by which we immersed in perverse desires and averse to all good, are inclined to all evil, full of all wickedness and distrust and contempt and hatred of God, we are unable to do or even to think anything good of ourselves. Well, tell us what you really think next time, will you? I mean, that doesn't pull any punches on sin, does it? And that's why sin is so unpopular to, to talk about. I mean, when, when Christians are talking about sin, all the non-Christians say, well, there you Christians go again, talking about sin. And Christians will say the same thing, there you Christians go, talking about sin. It's not a popular thing to talk about. So I want to talk about sin in a way that is very relevant today. In order to see what sin really is, you have to understand one of the most important concepts in all of the Bible. And it's this. Shalom. And that's a word likely you have heard. If you haven't heard shalom, what it is, is what does it mean? It means peace. The Hebrew word for peace. And when you think of peace between two people, what may come to your mind? Well, you might think peace between two people means they're not fighting anymore. Oh, we're not fighting anymore. Maybe we've declared a truce and we think of this as, as peace. Or maybe when you think of peace, you think it's 6 a.m. and I'm the first one up in the house and I've made a pot of coffee and no one else is going to wake up for another hour. Ah. It's serenity, and these teenagers are like not relating to that at all. 6 a.m., what are you talking about? There's no peace in that. And, you know, these, these scenarios may have a part of peace in them, a part of shalom in them, but it's certainly, I mean, shalom is much, much, much bigger than that, isn't it? So what is shalom? Uh, there's a guy named Neil Planiga. He's He really is one of just the, the most well-thought-of um, theologians and philosophers today. He's a uh, former president of and, and, and professor at Calvin Seminary. And here's what uh, Neil Plantiga says about shalom. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom is complete fulfillment, emotionally, physically, relationally, economically. And it's, there's this webbing, there's this interconnectedness of shalom. So if I am spiritually fulfilled, spiritual fulfillment that's going to have a positive impact on others around me. It should have a positive impact on others around me, right? Conversely, if I'm experiencing economic fulfillment, but there are others who are not around me, maybe I'm just using all of my stuff only for myself, that is not shalom. I may be experiencing peace because I've stockpiled a bunch of cash in my bank account, but that's not real shalom unless there is this interconnected with others and my economic Blessing is strengthening this fabric of shalom around me. 
And one of the great pictures of shalom is from Isaiah chapter 11. I really want to read this. Um, Isaiah 11, some of this is going to be very familiar to you. It's one of the great biblical pictures of shalom. Isaiah begins this chapter by saying there's going to be a root from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of who in the Bible? Any Old Testament trivia experts? David. So this root is going to come up through David's family. Looking at verse 3, we're going to put some, some of these scriptures on the board for you just to, to, to notice. Starting in verse 3, From this root, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with a lamb. The leopard will lie down with a goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Kids out there, this is not a... This is a don't try this at home moment, by the way, right now. Don't right now try leading the wolf and the lamb out into the field together. You don't lead them. Let the, let the zoo trainer lead those out into the field right now. The cow and the, will feed with a bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cupboards. Then again, don't try this at home because we're not here yet. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is this biblical picture of shalom, this, this webbing that goes just beyond, goes beyond human beings too, right? This connectedness, this shalom, even with the creatures of the earth. The wolf, the lamb, eating peacefully together not one another in the field. Now, how would this shalom happen? A king would establish this shalom. And Peter, let's talk about Peter's speech to the crowd of Jews. He, he mentions King David in this speech. Well, why does he do that? Because David was the most beloved king to the nation of Israel, the ancient Israelites. They revered King David. King David was the king, when they thought of the good old days, have you ever thought of good old days, back in the good old days? Things were like this and like that, and we liked it. Well, King David was the king that the Jewish people thought of when they thought of the good old days. Peter told his audience, remember King David in those good old days? Oh, yeah, we remember King David in those good old days. Peter says, you know that King David? Well, his body, his dead body, just a bunch of bones right now. They're six feet under right over there, or they're in that tomb right over there, Peter says. That's what happened to King David. But there is even a greater king than David that David talked about. Peter is telling this crowd of Jews. Peter then points out Psalm 110 in this this speech that we read. David, in Psalm 110, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Peter's pointing out, okay, David isn't talking about himself there. 
The Lord said to my Lord, he's not talking about himself. He's not going to be the king that brings in the shalom. Another king will come who will make things right. He will bring righteousness. Do you know who that king is? Peter tells this crowd, do you know who this king is? Who is it? Jesus whom you crucified. (laughs) Jesus is the true king that our beloved King David foresaw. The true King Jesus is sitting at God's right hand in heaven and he's bringing about his kingdom. And the agenda of the kingdom is the establishment of shalom everywhere. Just as Isaiah 11 says, as the waters cover every square inch of the seas. That's where God is intending to bring his shalom. So shalom is the context of Peter talking about sin. And according to this context, what is sin? Sin is our rebellion against shalom. That's what our sin is against. And when we see sin like this, there is a 180 degree turn around about how we see sin. Sin is not the reclaiming of good you are being deprived of. Sin is the rejection of the good God wants to give you. That's that turnaround. We used to think of sin as, yeah, I'm just getting back the good stuff that God is keeping from me. No, 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 no. Your sin is the rebellion against shalom. It's a rebellion against the good stuff that God does want to bring to you. Now, a great deal of the outrage that we have seen in our country over the last couple weeks, that, that outrage, I believe, is from this voice that is inside of us that says, things should not be this way. That is not how the way things should be. We know that to be true. We know that inside of us. When we see what happened, we're like, this is not how things should be. We know shalom is the way things should be. And when we don't see it, it outrages us. And I hope you feel that inner outrage. It's a good thing to feel that outrage when when we see that shalom is not happening. It's what we do with that inner outrage that is important. So I want to suggest two things, two ways forward in the right direction. Uh, One, we need to see personal responsibility with our sin. And think about what Peter said in verse 36. Um, He told the Israelites, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Let me break that down a little bit, that verse. Keep that up there. He says, all Israel. And actually what he really says is all the house of Israel. That's how he starts. All the house of Israel. Who is included in all the house of Israel? The Jews that were gathered? Thousands of them? Listening to Peter? Yeah. How about the Jews that were not gathered? Were they included in all the house of Israel? How about Peter himself? Was he included in all the house of Israel? Yes. How about the other disciples? Were they included in all the house of Israel? Yes. All the house of Israel is what 
Peter says. All the house of Israel, be assured of this. Be steadfast in you realizing this. That's what Peter is saying. Make sure that you get this. That God has made Jesus, Lord and Messiah, that Lord and Messiah, God has made this man Jesus. And actually, you look at the original language, how the sentence is structured, it ends with this. This is Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter leaves them with that. All the house of Israel, you crucified Jesus. Now, personal responsibility means recognizing, man, I'm a part of that. Because Peter was putting himself a part of that when he said, all the house of Israel. We have to recognize that my sins, all of my sins, your sins, all of your sins, played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus going to the cross. The reason that Jesus went to the cross was that he could pay the price for our sins. Yes, in going to the cross, Jesus showed that he, what, that he suffers for the suffering world. Yes, he showed that. But the reason that he went to the cross was so that he could pay the price for every one of my sins, every one of your sins. And if you think about Jesus on the cross and you don't see your sins laid upon him, then you're not thinking about the cross personally enough. We're just not doing that. If we're not seeing our our sins laid upon Jesus. And because your sin and my sin were laid upon Jesus on the cross, we participated in the killing of Jesus. Just like Peter said, all the house of Israel did. And so in the same regard, as we kind of reflect on what's gone on the past couple of weeks, we have to see our, our sin is personally intertwined in that as well. Our sin personally unraveling this shalom that God wants to bring to the world. We have to see ourselves as participants in the unraveling of the shalom that God wants to bring. And why do we see all these great injustices? Yes, there are specific people involved, particular people that bear particular responsibilities, absolutely. And yes, why do we see injustices? Because I have rebelled against the shalom that God wants to bring. And my sin is connected to that. So, first way forward is we start with personal humility. Recognizing, yeah, I'm to blame too. My sin is working against the shalom that God wants to build. Two, we need to see personal responsibility to God's mission of shalom. God says, I want you to help bring this shalom. In verse 38, look at what Peter says. In fact, I don't have it on the screens. I want you to look in your Bibles. Acts 28, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter gives a command in this verse. What does he say? Say it out loud. What does he say? Verse 38. Repent. Repent. What does the word repent mean? 
Does it mean feel sorry? Feel sorry for what you've done? Could it be a part of repentance? Could it be, I will resolve not to do that anymore? It's part of repentance, yeah. You know, the word repent there means change your mind. Change the way that you think. That's what the the word there for repent means. Now, the only reason for us to change our mind is if there's actually something better to think than before, right? That's the only reason that I can hear this command, change the way that you think, repent. The only way I'm going to take that seriously is is if there's a better thing that I can think, a better thing that I can set my mind to than before. Something, Something better, something more appealing. And the problem is when people think of sin, that's when they think, sometimes, of the more interesting life, the more exciting life, the more engaging life, the more adventurous life. And if that's the way that you think of sin, then repenting means a downgrade. (laughs) I'm hoping by now you're seeing, ah, yeah, that's not how we should see sin, as the more exciting, compelling, interesting life. But if that's the way that you see sin, as the better option, the more appealing option. Boy, it's really hard to take seriously this call to repent, isn't it? It's very difficult to do. But what we see in God's promise of shalom is that repentance, that's actually the command that that Peter gives to, to get us to the better life, the more compelling life. Christianity is about more. It's not about less. It's about building the shalom. It's about building this life that everyone thinks we need. Everyone thinks the world should be full of shalom. Everyone thinks that. Everyone wants that. Christianity is about building that. It's about more. It's not about less. So repentance, what is it? It's it's about pledging your allegiance to Christ and about pledging your allegiance to, to, to building this shalom in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our world, in our country. Say, yes, that's, that's what I'm setting my mind to. That's the better thought that I want to think about. I want to think about building shalom, about building this webbing up in the world, being a part of that and experiencing that. That's what I want. And that's what Peter has in mind when he says repent. Because the king wants to bring shalom to our world. Repentance It's about Christ elevating your life, not not suppressing it. And you know who I think gets this great? I think C.S. Lewis gets this right on the money. Think about the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not Lucy, Susan, Edmund, and Peter. Who is it? It's, It's Queen Lucy, Queen Susan, King Edmund, King Peter. And Aslan, Lion, the Christ figure, what is he doing? He's He's not... Say, now y'all kids be nice and don't make a mess. He's like sending them out on missions and adventure and dangerous stuff. Get on out there, kings and queens. That's fighting for shalom, building up shalom. Get out there. You're a king, you're a queen. Now, that's not make-believe. That's real. That's what God has for us. 
as I was, I was, I was reading and researching uh, for, for this, this sermon, I ran across this book, this article, both book and an article, uh, written by um, a professor at, at Calvin Seminary. Her name is Rebecca DeYoung. And she wrote a book on the, the seven deadly sins. How often do you think of the seven deadly sins? My guess is with this crowd, probably not too often, right? In the ancient church, the historic church, I talked about the seven deadly sins. Um, and one of the seven deadly sins, and they're called that just because of how they really mess up shalom, essentially, um, is the sin of sloth. I think that's, a, that's just a, a you know, I've heard that before, the sin of sloth. I always thought that, that's a strange sound and sin. And if you're like me and really haven't studied it much, what do you think of the sin of sloth is? You think it's what? It's being lazy. It's being lazy. It's not, not doing enough. If you're slothful, you need to get your act together. Get out and earn some money. Get out and do something. Get off your rear. That's not what the sin of sloth is about. We mess up Christianity when we think that the message of Christianity is, you're not doing enough, do better. Sloth, instead, through the historic church, was understood as being lazy, but not about doing things, being lazy about your life that God is calling you to live in love with him. And bringing shalom into the world, this calling that God has, has on your life, your main mission, being lazy about your main mission in life. That's what sloth was about. Your main mission of, man, building up this webbing of shalom in the world. Because that's who you are meant to be. That's your main mission. You are kings, you are queens. So the message of Christianity is not, do better. It is, you are better. You're a king, you're a queen. You've got this calling. And if you repent, and if you turn to Christ, he will send his spirit into you, and you'll be able to go out and help build up this webbing of shalom, help restore this world to the condition that it knows that it should be, And that it can be if the church, if you, if me, if we repent, say, Jesus, send us out on this mission to build up shalom. So how do you share real power today? The kind of power that this world needs us to show starts with humility. It starts with repentance. Two unlikely words, right? When we think of power. And then seeking ways to strengthen this webbing of justice where the right things happen. Fulfillment and flourishing. That's the adventure of the Christian. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we know that you died for us. You died for the whole world and you died for me because my sins were laid upon you thousands of years ago when you were crucified and you brought mercy. You brought peace between us and God. You did so to show your plan that we are to live with right and, and right with righteousness with God, right with God, um, and then living in in right ways with one another, not selfish ways, not self-serving ways, but in right ways, and that together we would bring this this peace, this restoration to the world. And, and Lord, we, we need to do that, but we know that we can't do it without your Holy Spirit in us. And so we pray this morning, give us, give us your Spirit. We repent, not uh, reluctantly. We repent, not thinking that we're giving up stuff. We repent thinking that there is the world to gain. There is shalom to gain in repentance. I'll make that true in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name.